Hello and welcome to Crime Theories of the Record, the podcast series where I talk about my interpretation of crime theories. This is your host, Karen. Hello everyone. Today I'll discuss one of the three conflict theorists, Dr. Austin Turk, who advanced conflict theory. Off the record, Dr. Turk studied delinquency in urban areas, and when he finished his PhD and moved to Indiana, they had a vacancy for general criminology. However, he eventually became very unhappy with the textbooks because they didn't make sense to him, and the 60s were upon them. But before I jump into this, I would like to remind everyone that I am not an expert in every aspect of my field, but I have researched the topic. Completing his graduate work at the beginning of the 1960s, Austin T. Turk became increasingly interested in the culture conflict perspective of criminologists, such as selling and emerging labeling theory. As with any theorist, his perspective was influenced by his life experiences. Off the record, Turk 1987 himself put it this way, Growing up as a working class boy in a small segregated Georgia town, I learned early that life is neither easy nor just for most folks. That irrationality and contradiction are very much part, maybe the most significant part, of social reality. That access to resources and opportunities has no necessary association with ability or character. That the meaning of justice, in theory, is debatable and of justice in practice is manipulable. And that whatever degree or degrees of freedom, equality, brotherhood, or security exists in a society are hard-won and tenuous. Now, by the end of the 1960s, Turk 1969 had presented a complete statement of his brand of conflict theory in criminality and legal order, quoting a lead from Sutherland in the introduction and citing the more recent efforts of Bolt and Dongrendorf, which I probably butchered the last name. It was this effort to build on Dongrendorf's perspective along with Simeli and Boldian approach that treated conflict not as some abnormality, but rather as a fundamental social form that distinguished Turk's theoretical contribution. For Turk, recognizing social conflict as a basic fact of life represented simple realism rather than any particular tendency towards cynicism. Although also a conflict theorist, Darwendorf 1958 and 1968 disagreed with Marx on the question of inequality. Instead of tracing inequality back to an unjust economic system, Darwendorf located the source in power differences, specifically in differences in authority or power that had been accepted as legitimate. Unlike Marx, who had argued for the abolition of inequality, Darwendorf took the position that because cultural norms always exist and have to depend on sanctions for their enforcement, some people must have more power than others to make the sanctions stick. In Darwendorf's view, it was not the economic inequality resulting from capitalism that produced social inequality. Instead, inequality was an inescapable fact because the basic units of society necessarily involve dominant subjection relationships. Thus, the idea of eliminating inequality was treated as a utopian dream. Turk 1969 seemed to have been persuaded of the essential reality of crime in which the same way as labeling theorists. For him, the theoretical problem of explaining crime lay not in explaining varieties of behavior. For this, may or may not be crimes depending on time and place. Instead, the problem lay in explaining criminalization the process of assignment of criminal status to individuals, 
which result in the production of criminality. Darendorf's influence was evident in Turk's definition of the study of criminality as the study of relations between the statuses and roles of legal authorities and those subjects, acceptors, or resistors, but not makers of such law creating, interpreting, and enforcing decisions. Such an approach was deemed necessary if the criminologist was to explain facts, such as variations in crime rates or to develop better methods of dealing with criminals. Turk 1969 stressed that assigning criminal status to an individual may have less connection with that person's behavior than with their relationship to the authorities. Indeed, criminal status may be ascribed to persons because of real or fancied attributes, because of what they are rather than what they do, and justified by reference to real or imagined or fabricated behavior. From this point of view, even if the criminologist eventually could succeed in explaining the behavior of criminals, such an achievement could not help in accounting for their criminality which had more to do with the behavior of the authorities in control of the criminalization process. Central to the concept of authority is its accepted legitimacy. Authority differs from raw power because it is regarded as legitimate power, the use of which is accepted by those subject to it. Any theorist concerned with the relationship between subjects and authorities must investigate the basis for such acceptance. Like some of the control theorists, Turk 1969 rejected the argument that acceptance of authority must be the result of internalization. He maintained that acceptance could be explained as a consequence of people learning the roles assigned to the statuses they occupied and simply acquiescing and going along as a matter of routine. Some have the status of authorities, others play the part of subjects. The legality of norms is defined solely by the words and behavior of authorities to which subjects will tend to defer. Like Simmel and Bolt, Turk 1969 was concerned with the logical consequences of the fact that some people had authority over others, not with the sources of this authority or whether it was just or unjust according to some normative conceptions of justice. In fact, logical consistency might be expected to force anyone who was convinced that concepts such as crime were a matter of labeling relative to time and place to a similar position with respect to concepts such as justice. In any case, Turk focused on the logical consequences of a authority relationships holding that how authorities come to be authorities is irrelevant to such an analysis. Because of Turk's 1969 argument that the assignment of a criminal status could have to be justified by the authorities by reference to real or imagined or fabricated behavior that was held to represent a violation of legal norms, he found it important to make a formal distinction between two types of legal norms, cultural norms and social norms. The first he defined as those set forth in symbolistic terms such as words as norms dealing with what is expected. The second, he identified as those found in patterns of actual behavior in terms of what is being done rather than what is being said. Turk pointed out that the cultural norms and social norms in a given situation may or may not correspond. According to Turk, 1969, a satisfactory theory accounting for the assignment of criminal status would include a statement of the conditions under which cultural and social differences between authorities and subjects will probably result in conflict. 
the conditions under which criminalization will probably occur in the course of conflict and the conditions under which the degree of deprivation associated with becoming a criminal will probably be greater or lesser. Now Watson to my Sherlock, like Simmel, he proceeded to examine the nature of these conditions through a series of formal logical propositions. Thus, Turk argued that given that cultural and social norms might not agree, the existence of a difference between authorities and subjects in their evaluation of a particular attribute or a particular act logically implies four situational possibilities. Each logical possibility carries a different conflict potential. The conflict probability could be highest, for example, in the high-high situation where there was one high congruence between the cultural norms preached by the authorities and their actual behavioral patterns and two similarly high congruence between the cultural evaluation of a particular attribute or act and the actual possession of the attribute or commission of that act on the part of the subjects. If both sides not only hold different standards but also act in accordance with them, then there is no room for compromise. A third logical possibility was described as one in which authorities, talk, and behavior were highly congruent, although there was little, if any, agreement between the words and actions of subjects. Such a situation would fall somewhere in the middle in terms of Turk's formal logic of conflict potential, but with a somewhat higher conflict potential than that logically inherent in the fourth and final possibility. The latter situation was described as one in which the attribute or act as described in the announced cultural norm happened to be in close agreement among subjects whereas the cultural norm preached by the authorities actually had a little relationship for their behavior. According to Turk, the third possibility could entail somewhat more conflict potential than would be the fourth because the authorities could be less likely to tolerate norms different from their own when their cultural norms were reinforced by their social norms. According to Turk's analysis, the logic of the relationships between cultural and social norms is complicated by additional formal propositions, under the assumption that an individual who has group support is going to be more resistant to efforts to change them, Turk concluded that the probability of conflict with authorities grows with the extent to which those having the illegal attributes or engaging in the illegal activities are organized. Under the assumption that the more sophisticated norm resistors could be better at avoiding open conflict through clever tactical maneuvers. He concluded that the probability of conflict increases as the authorities come from norm-resistors who are less sophisticated. The logical possibilities resulting from the combination of the two variables of organization and sophistication were set forth as follows. First, organized and unsophisticated. Second, unorganized and unsophisticated. Third, organized and sophisticated. And fourth, unorganized and sophisticated. Conflict odds were attached to each combination. Proceeding through formal analysis of the four formally distinct possibilities, Turk reached certain conclusions. First, he concluded the conflict between authorities and subjects is most probable where the latter are highly organized and relatively unsophisticated, aka delinquent gangs. He then concluded that the odds of such conflict decline to the extent that the subjects involved are unorganized and unsophisticated, such as skid rows transients, and still further to the extent that they are organized and sophisticated like syndicated criminals. 
It follows logically that the lowest probability of conflict would be associated with a situation in which the non-resisting subjects are unorganized and sophisticated, such as professional con artists. And for my white-collar lovers, you can always check out the show. These formal deductions may or may not much empirical reality, but they have a certain logical consistency and Turk encouraged research designed to access their actual empirical validity. As for authorities themselves, Turk pointed out that they must be organized or by definition, they would not be the authorities. Instead, they could be some sort of illegitimate mob. And that's wild to me. But he concluded that the probability of conflict between these authorities and subjects resisting their norms could be greatest where the authorities were at least sophisticated in the use of power. And the plot thickens when Turk's 1969 logic carried him to the same conclusion as that reached by the control theorist Hershey at the same time. That the probability of conflict was affected by the nature of the bonds between authorities and subjects. He concluded that where subjects are strongly identified with the authorities and generally agree in moral evaluations, an announced norm may be accepted in a quote-unquote father-knows-best spirit. But where Hershey stressed these bonds as central, Turk devoted much less attention to them. Considering society to be less a matter of Durkheimian bonds and more a matter of constant simulian conflict working itself out over time. However, we must remember that Hershey was focusing theoretical attention on juvenile delinquency, whereas Turk was devoting considerable attention to organized crime, political crime, and white-collar crime in general. Considering the relative stress on bonds as compared to conflict potentials is hardly surprising. For Turk 1969, an analysis of conflict probabilities was only a first step. Now, wax into my Sherlock, the key question was as follows. Once conflict has begun, what are the conditions affecting the probability that members of the opposition will become criminals, that they will be subjected to less or more severe deprivation? Part of the answer was traced to the same factors outlined previously that would continue to affect probabilities throughout the criminalization process. Turk concluded that additional variables tended to come into play with actual criminalization. First, Turk admitted that although the crucial norms defining the conflict were those of the higher authorities, the major factor in the probability of criminalization was likely to be the extent to which the official legal norms agree with both the cultural norms and the social norms of those specifically charged with that enforcing the legal norms, specifically the police, but also prosecutors, judges, and everyone involved with the judicial system and the criminal justice system. Bringing awareness to the importance of police discretion and decisions on the spot, he concluded that the extent to which the police agreed with the legal norms they were expected to enforce could have a major effect on the odds of arrest and criminalization. Prosecutors, judges, juries, and others were expected to affect the probabilities somewhat, but ultimately it could be the police as the frontline enforcers who could determine the extent to which normal sisters actually could be defined as criminals. In Turk's analysis, the relative power of enforcers and resistors became yet another variable affecting the odds of criminalization. He proposed that the greater the power difference in favor of norm enforcers over resistors, the greater could be the probability of criminalization. He asserted that the reluctance of the enforcers to move against very powerful resistors would keep the criminality of the powerful low regardless of their behavior. Off the record, we all have opinions about this topic, and we 
old have thoughts about politicians in this case. Moving on, he added the qualification, however, that some of the disapproved behavior of the least powerful also might be ignored if these individuals seem to pose no threat and weren't worth the bother. The final set of variables to which Turk assigned special significance in determining the odds of criminalization had to do with the realism of conflict moves. Although in part a matter of the sophistication mentioned previously, success in avoiding or producing criminalization also was regarded as dependent on factors beyond the use of knowledge of others' behavior patterns in manipulating them. Any move of the resistor was considered to be unrealistic if it 1. increased the visibility of the offensive attribute or behavior, thereby increasing the risk that the authorities could be forced to act, 2. increase the offensiveness of the attribute or behavior, 3. increase consensus among the various levels of enforcers, or 4. increase the power differences in favor of the enforcers. In Turk's little world, any move by the authorities was likely to be unrealistic if it 1. shifted the basis of their legitimacy away from consensus toward the norm of difference or obligation to obey despite disagreement, which could be likely in the case of power plays. 2. Represented a departure from standard legal procedures, especially if the shifts were unofficial, sudden, or sharp. And 3. Generalized from a particular offensive attribute so that additional attributes of the opposition also become grounds for criminalization. And 4. Increase the size and power of the opposition. Or 5. Decrease consensus among the various levels of enforcers. Turk went much further than this in the pointing out additional factors that may be expected to alter the nature and outcome of social conflict. He attempted to provide a logical integration of his propositions to demonstrate how various combinations affect conflict probabilities differently and went into great detail in describing possible indicators that might be used to operationalize his propositions to facilitate research. And if that was not enough, he dealt with how legal norms could be classified in practice, with the question of the best measures of critical concepts such as normative legal conflict, the significance of legal norms, relative power, and realism in conflict moves, and with the other issues that would have to be solved if his theory were to be tested by data. If you're interested in learning more, join me next week where I'll be introducing you to Dr. Chambliss's work and analysis on crime, power, and the legal process. Thank you for listening and choosing this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify or whatever platform you're listening from. And don't forget to tune in for the next episode. Off the record, if you need help visualizing these theories, go check us up on Instagram at ct.offtherecord.com.